Welcome to Unwanted Guests, the podcast that teaches you about insects and other pests that may join you in and around your home. It's brought to you by Texas A&M AgriLife Extension and the Texas A&M Department of Entomology. We're your hosts, Wizzy Brown, Robert Puckett, Molly Keck, and Janet Hurley. So this week on Unwanted Guests, we are talking about rodents. So Molly, I'm going to start with you first, and I'm going to ask the question that the term that gets thrown around a lot is commensal rodent. So can you explain to our listeners what commensal rodent means? Sure. So commensalism is essentially where you've got two species of something. Um, and one species gains or gets some sort of a benefit from the other species, but doesn't give anything in return to that other species. And the true definition is that they, um, they gain or benefit without, with the other species not benefiting or being harmed. But with rodents, you could really argue that they are kind of harming humans um, because they can cause some damage. But I've heard it I've heard it termed before sharing one's table, commensal rodents are sharing one's table. So we're essentially giving food and shelter to these rodents, but they're not giving anything back for for all the stuff that we're giving them. So they live off of us without really returning anything of worth. So when we talk about commensal rodents, what ones are, are we technically including in that? There's three main ones, the little house mouse, the Norway rat, and the roof rat. All right, so Robert, I'm gonna ask you the next one. So the next big question that everyone asks is what damage do they cause? I mean, other than you know people being afraid of them and whatnot, what, what is it about rodents that is considered to be bad or that people are, should be wary of? Well, you know, if you, if you think about physical damage around the home, I mean, oftentimes when rodents um, work their way into a structure, uh, you know, like very frequently we'll find them around like air conditioning conduit and they'll sort of chew away the insulation to get in. Um, once they get in and, and begin to nest there, of course, you deal with all sorts of, of issues associated with rodents like, um, you know, just smells from their urine um, and feces. Um, they do do some chewing um, in the interior of homes and can damage um, uh, insulation around wiring. And of course, this is very concerning. Um, and of course, they have uh, ectoparasites that can come along with them like fleas um, and mites. And so there's all sorts of uh, secondary issues associated with rodents. Great. So Janet, I, I'm going to ask you the, the tough one rodents, are they capable of transmitting diseases? So Puckett said that they have secondary ectoparasites like fleas and mites. Should people be concerned about that or specifically rodents themselves? Well, I mean, rodents can do two things. They can directly transmit diseases. So yes, I mean, even a, a rat bite can can be problematic. Some of their uh, droppings, some of their urine can also be contaminated. I mean, things like hantavirus is one of the things that is transmitted 
So how do people get that though? So you say the, the urine and the feces can transmit that. Can you explain to people how they get, because I, you know, if you're not directly exposed to it, how would they come into contact with whatever in the urines and feces of the rodents? Okay. So if you had rats living up in your attic or in your gardening shed or your garage, and you have a bunch of droppings and you may see what looks like large black flat piles, what it really is is urine. They make what's called urine pillars, but you may see all that. And when they walk and move about, they literally are excreting urine and droppings because that's part of the way that they talk to one another as a community of where is the food, where's not the food. But if that urine is contaminated with a virus like the hantavirus, then as you go to touch that stuff, you can actually become exposed to it. The other one now, so that's direct contact. Indirect, and as Robert was talking about the parasites, so between the fleas, there are two types of um, diseases. One's called scrub typhus, the other one's murine typhus, both of them being very similar in, in that they're a bacteria. But what happens is, is generally um, the flea bites the human. I mean, the fleas on the rat that has got the infection and then it goes from that to biting the human and then transmitting the disease. So I have a, a couple of questions. One is I know a lot of people are familiar with the black death, which is plague. And they know that that's transferred by fleas that were on rats. Do we still have plague today? And is it in Texas? Yes, we have versions of um, the plague. And there are three different types between, you know, the bubonic versus the stereotype. The interesting thing is, is on plague, there is some some data that it's not as deadly as it used to be, but it all depends. It all depends on who you are because you've got bubonic, pneumonic, and septicemic. Well, the septicemic's the one that, I mean, everybody's familiar with the bubonic because that's why we got the bubonic plague. But you know, the other versions can be just as as deadly. It's just it doesn't seem to be that the biggest one we have others and the interesting thing about zoonotic diseases and it doesn't matter what we're talking about if there's a host and a vector and they can transmit it to humans there's always a chance for it to go rogue okay so my second question is is it possible for urine or fecal matter to volatize when it dries out and become airborne and transfer disease organisms that way? That's a hard one to say because I mean, yes, when it's dry material, it doesn't matter what it is, if there is a chance for that matter. But I mean, it's the, the happenstance of having that virus. So 
we living in urban areas, our chances of having that type of virus is probably slimmer than say, if I'm going to a national park up in the Northwest part of the country that has um, what are called deer mice and white-footed mice, which they have now learned they're kind of interchangeable. But for whatever reason, those mice seem to transmit more and coming in contact with stuff like that in, in cabins where it's, it's more prevalent. But I mean, there's a lot of environmental that goes along with some of these you know, disease transmissions. The only thing I would 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 add to that discussion is that I, I remember um, when I first learned about hantavirus, or I think at the time they were calling it uh, four corners disease. And yep. I, I remember um, pretty significant discussions from health officials that were concerned about aerosolized viral particles. Um, so there, I, as I recall, there were some recommendations on, you know, and that, and that part of the US where it was much more prevalent, um, sort of cleaning and sweeping and, and the idea that you have to be very careful and wear masks and this sort of thing. Um, I, I do remember that discussion. That I would definitely agree on. I mean, I wouldn't touch any of this stuff without wearing a good face mask, without mm -hmm. wearing, you know, gloves, without, you know, being mindful. I mean, if it's really dry, you can always put you know, a little disinfectant mm -hmm. solution, just like you would on back guano that yeah. would, you know. I always, I always think about our pest management professionals that are servicing like rodent stations, uh, bait boxes and the like, you know, and getting in and around those. That's always been sort of in the back of my mind that they're in a bit of peril doing that. Yeah, hopefully they're using proper protective equipment, but yes, let's know, hope for that's, that. that's kind of their decision, right? So I guess we need to take a step back for a minute because we've covered, you know, what's the commensal rodent, what damage, what diseases, but we, we really need to talk about the specific rodents and a little bit about their biology. So Molly said that we have essentially three that we talk about when we're talking about commensal rodents, the ones that are common that we deal with, and that is the house mouse, the Norway rat, and the roof rat. And of course, Norway rats are also known as brown rats and roof rats are known as black rats. But these are gonna look different depending upon what one you're talking about. Obviously the house mouse is gonna be much smaller in the adult stage than the rats are. But when we're looking at the two rats, cause a lot of times you can't tell them by color even though one's a brown rat and one's a black rat. Uh, roof rats are usually nesting in aerial locations. And so they are going to be, in my opinion, more acrobatic. And this is how I remember it in my head. So they're, they're up high, usually traveling on wires and roofs and trees and things like that. And so they have to be very sleek and slender. And so they have a longer tail to help them balance when they're jumping and that sort of thing. Whereas Norway rats or brown rats are ground nesters and they're going to dig um, tunnels and burrows in the ground and they'll have little escape areas and whatnot. And so they don't have to be sleek. So they're kind of more uh, big or chunky looking and they have shorter kind of stubbier tails. 
where it gets tricky in my book, and Janet, I'm going to turn to you on this one, is when you're dealing with juvenile rats versus house mouse and telling the difference between the two. Because I know that there's that whole one has a um, blunter face or you look at the ears or the feet are bigger. And, you know, unless you're looking at these things a lot, I find it really difficult to tell the difference. It's like, how do you know that it has bigger feet? Because, you know, it, it may be somebody's first time dealing with it. It's the tail. So house mice, you know, mus muscus, just so you guys know, I, this is my geekdom. You've heard my, my, my partners here, they all have had fun with all their insects, but it, Janet, it's the one that gets geeked out about rats. So um, the house mouse, they're little, their tail is little, it's got some fur on it. Um, they're small in and of itself, even their tail doesn't go all the way to the tip of their nose. Roof rats, and this is the way you can tell a juvenile from a house mouse and or a Norway rat is, those roof rat juveniles, they come out of the womb with a long tail. And that tail will go from their behind all the way to the tip of their nose. The Norway rat does not. Once you, and, and yes, this does take a little time, but I mean, once you look at their ears and their, and, and really on their paws, when you're looking at them, um, I'm trying not to geek, uh, but they do have roof rats, especially when you look at them closely, their front paws, I swear, are like little hands. And, that, and the reason that's important is, is because as a rodent, because they do gnaw all the time, but they can use those front paws to help them pull back something to expose a better way to get in to seek whatever they're seeking. And that's kind of really important when we're talking about rodents because they're very opportunistic and they always try to come in where you least expect it and where you don't want them. Okay, so let's move on to like ranges because everybody's like, okay, I found whatever. So how can you tell how far they're going to travel? Because I know the different ones, the, the house mouse versus the Norway versus the roof are going to have different ranges that they're going to look for food and water and other resources and that can kind of affect where you are um, going to trap and things like that. Well, gee, mom, if I'm a kid, how far do how far is the fridge? <laughs> and I say that tongue in cheek. I mean, if they've got ample food, they don't need a whole lot of water, and it's warm and they're undisturbed. If I'm a mouse, three, five, ten feet max. I mean, if I'm really stressed, I can go 50. If I'm a rat, typically 10 to 100 feet from that nest, juveniles won't travel that far. So you find in the babies being that close to the nest, I mean, they don't really kind of leave the nest for a couple of weeks. So that's, they're generally within 10 feet. Mom and dad, mom and dad can go 100 feet, 500 feet, depending on what they're searching for. 
I mean, it just, it's a matter of what's close, what's predatory and what can they, where can they hide? All right. So what should we be concerned about with offspring? So I know, I know that they breed almost what constantly, almost it's like they, you know, once they wean off those babies, they start reproducing again. What is the difference between the three? So mice are the most frequent. Okay. They, they can be weaned off of mom and breeding within six weeks. Rats typically weaned off mom within a couple of weeks, but not breeding really until oh, almost three months. But I mean, it all depends. And this is the hardest question anyone will be able to answer because again, it all has to do with ample food, ample water, ample shelter. But if I've got all, everything I need, I can have, especially if I'm a roof rat, if I'm a roof rat or an oil rat, because I'm generally living someplace, I can probably have two to three litters a year. If I'm a house mouse and I've really got ample food and shelter and there's no predator around, Wow, I can breed like every six to eight weeks. So, and you figure they've got anywhere. How many is in a litter? I was just getting to that. I was just trying to do my math. I was like, there's sometimes average six, but I mean, it can be a couple less and it can be a couple more. But, and here's the scary part. They typically in their litters have equal boy to girl. Again, survival of the fittest. Janet, do they do they uh, do they have a tendency to inbreed? Yes. Thank no, you. that dominant male, especially in um, Norway rats, and it's known in roofies as well, but Norway's especially that dominant or bull male of the litter, and they can have up to fifteen in in a in a pack. I mean, he may be the the chief, kind of like in Animal Kingdom world the one that, you know, procreates because that's just the way they, they are in, in, in certain situations. That is just craziness. I mean, I, I just think about the mice and if they're just not taken care of and how you can just be overrun. No, you can go to like to zero to a hundred in, in such a quick way. And, it, and mice are, and it's interesting because mice go in like pockets and you'll find them. And it's interesting because they can, they are probably one of the best known mammals on the planet at surviving. All right. So it's all about exclusion. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what we are going to move on to. So what are we looking for and how are we taking care of these things? So let's say Molly, if you were going to look for a rodent issue, what are some things that you would look for around a structure or in a structure? I think the big one that a lot of people look for are the, the, the urine um, droppings like with a black light, those should shine, but also they, they're dirty little things. And, you know, it's really similar to 
my cats that like to rub around the laundry room to get to their food and you start to notice that there's these rub marks or these like grease marks that they've left behind. And, and rodents will do that too because they're creatures of habit where they like to take the same route throughout the house, inside the house, wherever it is that they're going because they know that that's safe. They have a, a sixth sense where they remember the way that things feel and so they try to continue on that route and they'll leave those rub marks where they've turned a corner really quickly or crawled up against the wall over and over and over again and it's just a dark um, dirty spot you know where you can you can clear it away with your finger but it's a little bit greasy to your hand so I'd say that's one big one another one might be that you see damage like chewing where they've chewed out a hole in something I mean they like Janet said they have to continue to chew so they're always gnawing down those little teeth um, and then you might also see burrows around the house but in my in in my experience, those are always the hardest to locate. If I come across who, <laughs> how do I tell the difference between a Norway rat and a roof rat? I mean, obviously the house mouse is going to have like tinier poo than the rats are, but. Yes. And sometimes people confuse house mouse droppings to, to cockroach droppings, the big American cockroach droppings. One thing with all three species, um, their droppings will be pinched at the end, okay? I mean, without going into biological things. The other thing is generally there will be hair. A lot of times, um, so the house mouse, very small fecal pellets, whereas the roof rat and the Norway rat, and what is interesting is roof rats have more skinnier poop and roof and Norway rats actually have a, a, a fatter poop, but they're both pinched and generally depending on what they're feeding on is what you'll see in it. And so you can kind of relate the poo of the rats to the body shape. So Norway rats, big and bulky, so is their poo. And the roof rats are sleeker and so is their poo. Yeah. <laughs> Makes it easy to remember. The other one that I always get people, they think that it's I don't even know why they think it's rodent poo other than the cockroach stuff, because I that's Cockroach poo has like indentations on it because they're squeezing out all the water where rodents don't do that. So you can tell the difference there. But geckos and geckos have like, it's like a black dot with like white coming off of it. And so in my mind, it looks nothing like rodent poo at all. But I tend to get pictures of that and they're like, do I have a rodent problem? And I'm like, it's on the wall. So I don't think that that's coming from a rodent. Okay, so we can look for the the urine. We can look for the poo. We can look for the grease marks, um, gnawing damage. Once you find those, what do we need to do to work on getting rid of them? So I I have obviously I can use my own house because <laughs> I had rats in the garage. So your house has some type of a rodent in it. What do you do? How do you, do I start sealing things up or do I trap them or do I bait them or, you know, how, how do I get rid of the rodents and how do I know where to put the stuff to get them? Let's start with traps. There are different kinds of traps, right? There's like the regular snap trap. There's also live traps. If you don't want to kill them. 
Um, and then there's those ones that if you don't like to see them dead, then they kind of flip it into a little box thing. There's and that's really good for mice, the small, I mean, those traps, because the rats won't go into the, the little things. I mean, I guess the biggest yeah. thing is, is I said, you got to almost know the enemy. That so it, you, so it, it, if I'm, I'm thinking mice, mice are inquisitive, so they may go to a trap. However, rats are not typically real fond of those snap traps at first. You put something new out with rats, especially an adult rat, the juveniles, yeah, maybe you can get them because they're still young and stupid, but adults, they're going to see that trap and look at it and go, oh, heck no. So again, sometimes it's just, if I'm doing it, I tell everybody, the first thing, of course, is exclusion. How do they get into your garage? Because you don't need anybody else moving in. And once the once you know that is sealed up, then your plan of attack is, yeah, trapping if it's just one colony. You had a small colony. If it's, you know, something bigger, then, yeah, we have to, to go on. But exclusion is always at the top of the list because, y'all, I, I don't like, as much as I like rats and think they're fascinating, rats in the home, no. So, I mean, I have to worry about, because I've, I've fought them for years at, at the house, keeping, keeping a good door seal on my garage, you know, sealing up as my home settles because I don't want them getting into the storage area or the attic where I have stuff that they can get to. And then on those snap traps, putting them out and then just letting them sit. And, and y'all can find this stuff out on the web on how you do pre-baiting for snap traps. And it's really a, a, an art and a science of putting out the devices, letting the rats get close to them, then putting the whatever lure you're going to use and it's not always peanut butter. It could be a Jolly Rancher, Rancher or a piece of bacon bits, depending on what they are feeding on. And then once they pick up that, that lure, then actually putting it on a live trap for them to pick up and, and get demolished. And generally so, how I make sure the trap is not, it's baited, but not live is I use zip ties to snap it open so that they're familiar with stepping on the toggle without it going off. Um, but when you are pre-baiting your traps, this is where Janet said there's an art and science to it. If you have some area that they have access to plenty of food, then you may want to switch to something that isn't food, maybe like nesting material, like oh. yarn or cotton balls or something, something that they can use to make their house comfy cozy. So, okay, let's move on from traps to baiting. I know you have fancy schmancy bait stations at the Dallas Center, Janet. Do you want to are those available to homeowners or do they just have to go with regular bait stations? Well, so when we talk about bait stations, it's interesting because several years ago, the US EPA changed their rules of how rodenticide is used in the country. 
And a lot of it had to do with um, misuse by the public using some of those toss packs. So if I want to be a DYIer and I want to do use that rodenticide bait, when I go to the store, in order for me to purchase it, it's going to come in its self-contained container. Because the way the, the rules were updated, it said that consumers can only purchase so much and it's got to be self-contained so that children and pets aren't exposed to those products. Now, I'm as a licensed pesticide company, I can go and I purchase these other bait stations and there are several models Within those stations, depending on the model, I have um, bars and what they call baffles that allow for me, the, the pest control technician, to put a rodenticide bait in and then that sits out and the rats come in, feed, and then eventually eat enough of that rodenticide to go off and die. I, I have a thing that people always talk about the rats that eat the rat bait and then they have to go find water to drink you get this question <laughs> oh you mean the myth Lately. yeah well yes yes what well, question myth whatever <laughs> it's a myth the the fact that oh the rat's going to eat the rodenticide and then they're going to go outside and they're going to be searching for water and die I, I'm still baffled of where where that came from. Even the the first generation, which is warfarin, or for most of our listeners, they probably are very familiar with like Coumadin. It's a blood thinner. I mean, I don't think blood thinners make you go drink more water. So I don't know where that myth ever came from, but that's really part of the reaction of what happens with these rodenticides is they're designed to work on the, the rodents neurological and toxicological system so that they just shut down. Okay. So when using baits, always wear your personal protective equipment when you're putting them out and make sure that they are in tamper proof stations. We're not just chunking stuff into the attic or under the house or porch or whatever, because you want to make sure that non-target organisms are not getting to that bait. That is very important to yeah, that's have everyone know. <laughs> big federal laws, people. If you do, this is one of those, if you do it inappropriately, I mean, if the feds ever found out, it is a real bad hand, hand spank. And it's because of what they are. Okay, so the last part I think that we need to cover is exclusion. And, you know, you, you covered a little bit of exclusion, but when we are doing exclusion, I don't think that we need to go in depth here because we did the previous podcast on pretty much exclusion and all of those things we were talking about in that one can certainly be applied to the rodents. It may be that we just need to tweak some of that to make things a little bit sturdier. So if you're doing um, sealant or expanding foam or something like that to seal up holes where they've chewed into the house, you might want to put some stronger material in there along with the sealant so they can't chew through. 
um, like hardware cloth or stainless steel mesh screening or something like that. And you may have larger areas. It, it Again, it depends on what they're chewing and stuff like that. Most definitely. The one thing is, remember, they, they have this biting power because they are gnawing all the time, biting power, at least 7,000 PSI. So it's things like hardware cloth, sheet metal. Um, there are some DYI um, mesh that you guys can use, door sweeps, making sure they can't get in. If you... If, it's more like a deterrent. If you make, if they have to work at it, they'll move on. So I think probably the other thing that goes along with exclusion is what size of a hole do we need to seal up? Because with the rats and mice, there's going to be different sizes and we have ways to tell that. Does anybody want to chime in on that one? Okay, so it's a quarter of an inch and a half an inch, but here's the reality. As you people are listening to your podcast, just look down at your fingers, index finger, size of a mouse, index in, in at least your, your next finger, your middle finger, put those together. That's almost a rat the size of a quarter. And then add biting power, 7,000 PSI. So it doesn't take a lot for them to get in. It doesn't take a lot of space to get in at all. And you need to keep that in mind because it may be that you have a really small hole that you don't think that they can get in through, but they can, because essentially all they need to do is get their head through and get that skull through. And then the rest of it's just all kind of squishy. And so they can just wiggle right in. The hardest part is being able to see the exterior of your property foundation and at roof ledge edge level and the reason I say that is is depending on how your structure is built is depending on how you know how many edges or ledges or porticos or any of that you know those all become entrance points. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Unwanted Guests. With cooler temperatures coming watch for rodents moving inside your home. You'll want to trap any rodents and exclude your home to keep them outside where they belong. For more information, go to extensionentomology.tamu.edu. Catch you next time.